Well, I'm no musician, but that sounded pretty complex to me. <laughs> what, a, what a fabulous piece. You know, most people, if you're ever speaking, you know, on any podium, they tell you, never follow children or dogs, you know, pets. But I don't know how you follow that. That was just fabulous. Thank you very much. Yeah, I'll give it a shot anyway. Yeah, I'll see if I can do it. You know, over the last couple of weeks since Easter, we've been reading in Acts of the Apostles. And as the early church was beginning to form and beginning to face the issues that ministry and mission in the name of Jesus required, they began to discover that there was opposition and they had to deal with it. But rather than the external opposition that we were reading about in Acts, today our text from Romans shifts the focus as if to say the real threat, the real danger doesn't come from without, it comes from within. I invite you to listen for God's word as it comes to us from the book of Romans. Let us therefore no longer pass judgment on one another, but resolve instead never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of another. I know and I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. And if your brother or sister is being injured by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. Do not let what you eat cause the ruin for one of one for whom Christ died. So do not let your good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not food and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The one who thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and has human approval. Let us then pursue what makes for peace and for mutual edification. May God speak to us this day by His Word. I don't know if you've ever heard the story of the farmer who early in the morning was out working in his field and along the road came a stranger. And he approached the farmer and he asked him, tell me, what are the people like in the town up ahead? And the farmer kept engaged in his work and he asked simply, well, what were the people like in the town you just came from? And he said, well, those people were bitter people. They were angry people. They were shallow people. Uh, they were not generous people. There was a lot of conflict. And the farmer says, well, I'm, I'm sorry to say, I think that's what you'll find in the town up ahead too. And the man went off in a huff. Later that same day, another stranger appeared and asked the farmer, what are the people like in the town up ahead? And the farmer said, well, tell me, what were the people like in the place you've just come from? And he said, oh, they were delightful people. They were warm, they were generous, they were kind, they were caring people. I hated to have to leave them. And the farmer put down his hoe and reached out and said, I think that's exactly the people you will find in this town. 
Now, the point, of course, is the story is that it's not so much about the others as it is about us. Who we are kind of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy in our relationships with others. Someone once put it this way, we don't see things as they are. We see things as we are. This whole issue of conflict, dissension, difficulty within a church or with any community is what the Apostle Paul is dealing with in the book of Romans. Now, we're in the very early stages of a new presidential election season. And though the election is 16 months away, candidates are already now posturing for their campaigns. My favorite president of all time is Abraham Lincoln. And he took the country through perhaps the greatest and most serious challenge to our constitutional togetherness. In 1838, Abraham Lincoln spoke to the Young Men's Lyceum of Springfield, Illinois, long before he became president. And the subject of his speech on that occasion was citizenship and the threats to our American institutions. Listen to what he had to say on that occasion. Shall we expect some transatlantic military giant to step the ocean and crush us at a blow? Never. All the armies of Europe, Asia, and Africa combined with all the treasure of the earth except our own in their military chest and with Bonaparte for a commander could not by force take a drink from the Ohio or make a track on the Blue Ridge in a trial of a thousand years. At what point then is the approach of danger to be expected? I answer, if it ever reaches us, it must spring from amongst us. It cannot come from abroad. If destruction be our lot, we must ourselves be its author and finisher. As a nation of free men, we must live through all time or die by suicide. Now, during the lead-up to the Civil War, Lincoln focused on other texts of Scripture like this one, a house divided against itself cannot stand. That's from Mark's Gospel when Jesus says, if a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. We might know that rather familiar expression, united we stand, divided we fall. So the Apostle Paul, surveying the growing tension within the church at Rome, and with a desire to present a, this growing, persecuted band of followers of Jesus, Paul knows that the real danger is from within and not from without. It's those who have the power to cause disunity and fracture that really threaten the community of believers 
It's not those who are openly hostile to this faith. Rome was the capital of the Roman Empire, the hub of commerce and industry. It's the center of the nation. As a city, it attracted great diversity, and the early church there must have reflected that diversity. Two separate groups had polarized around certain personal convictions. And then they generalized their own convictions into a standard by which everyone in the community was to be measured. In other words, in an attempt to achieve uniformity. The unity of the church was in danger. Now one group called themselves something of the perfectionists. They refused to eat meat or drink wine on religious grounds due to the presence of idol worship in the culture. You see, most meat that was sold in the markets in Rome would have been sacrificed to a pagan idol in a ritualistic fashion. And not wanting to pollute themselves, these Christians refused to eat any meat. We might call them foodies today. They observed special holidays. They were vegetarians in order to not unwittingly participate in pagan worship. They held convictions and they held them tenaciously. On the other side were those who had little hesitation to eat whatever they wanted. I saw a cartoon recently with a picture of a whole big pizza. And the caption read, Yeah, I'm into fitness. I'm into fitness this, I'm into fitness this uh, pizza into my mouth. The second group ate and drank whatever they liked with no concern for holy days, no concern that was amongst the super-religious. With a clear conscience, they drank deeply of life and knew the freedom of Christ. And they despised their overly cautious brothers and sisters in faith. They flaunted their freedom from religious trivia, and they encouraged others to do likewise. And so the sides were drawn, the self-righteous and the self-reliant. The perfectionist, the freedom lovers. And each party claimed that they had more claim to Jesus Christ than the other. Now apparently on television there's a remake of the old television show The Odd Couple. Back in the day when I was watching those shows, it was Jack Klugman and Tony Randall who starred in the show It was about these two guys that just had nothing in common living together and trying to work it out. One who was fastidious and one who was a slob. Well, the church is something like that. It is an odd combination of people gathered from every walk of life, every tradition, every race, gender, economic status thrown together. Not because we like one another, not because we agree with one about another about everything, simply because we worship 
the same Lord. In the early church, there were former prostitutes and tax accountants, military personnel, and revolutionaries. How is this new community of faith going to survive? Where are they going to draw the boundaries for acceptance, for the fellowship of believers? Now, when I was a kid, you know, I have two brothers and two sisters, so we were a fairly large family. When I was a kid, my older brother and I tried to convince our younger brother that he was not actually one of us. We had adopted him only because we found him and we felt sorry for him. And the implication of that was he better treat us well or we're going to take him back where we found him. The amazing thing to me is my mother didn't see the humor in that. (laughs) And now our little brother is 6'6", about 285. He's a cop and carries a gun, so we don't tease him a lot anymore. (laughs) But in a way, it was kind of as preposterous as that. A ridiculous claim made by each side of this dispute that they had more real claim to belonging to Christ than the other side. That their personal convictions were the standard by which all members in the family of Christ were going to be measured. And Paul thoughtfully inserts himself between the two parties and takes neither side. I tell you what, I I learned a lot about how to be a pastor in church conflicts when I used to referee hockey games. The goal in refereeing a hockey game is when a fight breaks out, you make sure nobody else gets into it. You make sure the benches don't clear. And you wait until the two combatants are so tired they're waiting for you to pull them apart. Paul inserts himself into this argument that's taking place in Rome. He takes neither side. And he challenges both of them to step out from behind their judges' benches and embrace one another. Differences in all, equally members of the family of Christ. So then, stop judging one another, he says. Paul's quick to acknowledge that there's room for this great diversity within the church. And he cautions both sides against the danger of self-idolatry when we set ourselves up as judge and jury of others in the community of faith because that role belongs to one and only one, the Master. Servants are not in a position to judge other servants. Now Paul, as we know, was later executed for his faith. So the external threat was real. And the Roman government would try with bitter cruelty to destroy this growing young church. But the reality is it failed. Ultimately. And in fact, its efforts to extinguish this community of faith only led to its expansion. 
As one historian put it, the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. It was not external opposition. It was the slanderous remarks spoken in the shadows within the church. The biting humor whispered behind backs. The critical judgment that were whispered so innocently that threatened the church. And it still threatens the church. When I'm critical of others, I'm saying much more about where I'm coming from than I am saying anything true or real about others. You may remember that during World War II, a young German theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer was asked to direct a seminary in Germany, in Finkenwald, a seminary of the Confessing Church. Now, the Confessing Church had taken a position in opposition to the German National Church, which had thrown in with the Nazis in the 30s. And the Confessing Church was protesting that position. And Bonhoeffer was a leader in that effort. He wrote a book entitled Life Together about this community that was living together and studying together in Finkenwald. And here's what he has to say about Christian community. The serious Christian set down for the first time in Christian community is likely to bring with him a very definite idea of what Christian life together should be and then try and realize it. But God's grace speedily shatters such dreams. Just as surely as God desires to lead us to a knowledge of genuine Christian fellowship, so surely we must be overwhelmed by a great disillusionment with others, with Christians in general, and if we're fortunate, with ourselves. By sheer grace, God will not permit us to live even for a brief period of time in a dream world. And then he goes on to claim this. He who loves his dream of community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter. Even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial, End quote. Now, you see, I think Dietrich Bonhoeffer had captured exactly what Paul was talking about in Romans. In every age, in every period of time, the church must decide which issues require tolerance and which issues require resistance. The goal of unity is not always the only goal. All of us who have been ordained as elders or deacons or ministers of word and sacrament, teaching elders in the church, we have taken an oath to seek the peace, the unity, and the purity of the church. Yet I have to confess that I am more often guilty of being critical of brothers and sisters in faith than I am of tolerating what should be intolerable. My intolerance rarely has anything to do with any great issue. 
The gospel's not at stake. Truth itself is not being violated. Justice does not need to be preserved. It's more often than not my limited perspective, my own personal values and convictions. And then I turn those against others. If we hold on to our dreams of what we wish the church would be too tightly, we actually sabotage the real community. Yesterday, the Presbytery of San Gabriel met to talk about some of the difficult issues of our day and age. We used for litany for our worship a little section from the Belhar Confession. The Belhar Confession was written in a period of and to address and protest apartheid in South Africa. We proclaimed this yesterday in worship. Listen to these words. We believe that Christ's work of reconciliation is made manifest in the church as the community of believers who have been reconciled with God and with one another. That unity is therefore both a gift and an obligation for the church of Jesus Christ. That through the working of God's Spirit, it is a binding force and yet simultaneously a reality which must be earnestly pursued and sought. One which the people of God must continually build up to attain. Therefore, let us no longer pass judgment on one another, as Paul says, but let us resolve instead never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of another. We come to one table. We eat from one loaf. We drink from one cup. There is one Lord. There is one faith. There is one baptism. One God and Father of us all who is in all and working in our midst to create the community of faith surrounded by Him. When we lift up Jesus Christ, He draws us to Himself and to one another. That's what this table is about. This is the Lord's table. All who humbly put their trust in Christ are encouraged and invited to come to this table to receive what Christ has prepared. Let us prepare our hearts for Holy Communion.